You are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hard to believe that this year will mark four years since Kilauea claimed 700 homes in Hawaii Island's Puna District and forever changed the landscape at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. With things a little more stable along the East Rift Zone and within the park today, the National Park Service is proposing a recovery plan to repair or replace critical park infrastructure and facilities damaged during the 2018 eruption and collapse of Kilauea Volcano. The Conversations, Russell Subiano reached out to uh, NPS and the U.S. Geological Survey to learn more about the plan. The National Park Service is calling it the Disaster Recovery Project, and its proposed repairs and rebuilds will not only benefit park visitors, but also the USGS scientists and staff that monitor volcanic activity on the southeastern side of the Big Island. But in order to understand why NPS has proposed this plan, it's important to understand the scope of the damage. I called up Jessica Farrakane, the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park Public Affairs Specialist. That was pretty much the most destructive volcanic event we've had in Hawaii in modern history. What happened during that time was underneath the summit of Kilauea, magma stored up in that chamber, all of that drained out and went to the East Rift Zone. It caused the summit of Kilauea to violently and dramatically collapse. So it fell a couple, a thousand more feet. It sunk that far and just made the crater a lot bigger. Park infrastructure, the heartbeat of the park of Hawaii Volcanoes National Park is also at the summit of Kilauea. So our Kilauea Visitor Center is here. The Jagger Museum and the USGS um, Okamura Building, those, were the, those two were the, the most damaged. But the majority of our park infrastructure is located here at the summit. Crater Rim Drive, which encircled Kilauea Caldera at the edge, part of that and a parking lot and an overlook actually fell into the crater. Wow. Um, several miles of, of road on the um, on the western side of Crater Rim Drive that will never reopen. They're just so badly damaged. And of course, part of that is in the road. And then also at, at Jagger Museum, there was significant damage done to the floor, to the walls, you know, some cracking that happened. And just kind of like this general sloping, I mean, it, it is right on the crater, you know, it, it's very much so on the crater's edge. Um, so those those buildings are completely unsound now, and they are for demolition. And there's really no, there's not a lot of point in rebuilding them because of their proximity to the crater edge and the damage that happened to the, that, that area. It's almost like like the homes on the on the shorelines, right? As sea levels are rising and the homes that are built along the shoreline face this danger. You guys had a similar experience where your your front yard collapsed, right? Into right. The yeah. Okay. In our case, it was kind of like the front yard, the backyard, the side yard, <laughs> part of the house, you know. It was it is really it is where most visitors also come to the park. But it was right. primarily the, you know, the area that bore the brunt of that destruction. Is it's primarily in the Ue Kahuna area that 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 host you know where the park had built um, the Jagger Museum as well in in the 1930s and then the USGS Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. So primarily those two buildings are the ones that won't reopen. And then of course Crater Rim Drive, very unlikely that would ever be rebuilt to encircle the caldera because now we've seen during these collapse events that can happen, caldera just gets bigger and bigger as it falls in on on itself. So the park 
and the USGS has proposed a disaster recovery project. Yes. Its focus is to repair, replace, relocate, or remove critical park infrastructure, equipment, and facilities that were damaged back in 2018. Yeah. What seems to me to be the biggest part of the project and the most impactful to the visitor experience is restoring access to the overlook area at Wekahuna yep. and the replacement of the Jagger Museum Visitor Center. Can you right. talk about what what would happen to those? Right. So when after 2018 happened, it really gave the park a great chance or opportunity, if you can put it that way, to kind of hit the reset button and look really carefully and deeply at, at where we want to build things, where should things be. Probably away from the crater edge would be a good So the Jagger Museum definitely fulfilled a great function for visitors. It taught them about the geologic significance of this area. It taught about the cultural significance of this area, too, being home to Pele Honuamea. And that function is, has been lost now. Kilauea Visitor Center is quite small and can't accommodate that, the amount of visitation that Jagger got. So by combining the former Jagger Museum into a new visitor center, kind of close to where Kilauea Visitor Center is now, but combine functions into a new building. That's one of the primary components of this plan, the disaster recovery plan. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah. That, yeah. The, uh, I think part of the beauty of, of relocating that visitor service function closer to the park entrance is that it is closer to the park entrance. Getting out of the Agri Museum, you know, that's two miles from the park entrance. So it was kind of further away. Now we'll, keep, we'll be able to, people will be able to come into the park if this proposed action goes forth, of course. People would be able to come into the park get their bearings, see the visitor center exhibits and, you know, and engage in the park that way, and then head out and see the different sites along the park. If the park builds these buildings close to the entrance, that's one of our busiest areas during periods like during the winter holidays, sometimes the traffic backs all the way out onto highway 11. Mm -hmm. What we're proposing is a roundabout to really redirect traffic, you know, to the places that the people want to go, whether it's down Chain of Craters Road or to the visitor center or further down Crater Rim Drive. So the story map that is out for the public to look at too really paints a nice, compelling visual picture of what that looks like. I, I think that that roundabout is an underrated part of the project as well. If anybody has been either stuck on the highway waiting to get in. Yes. And I yeah. was even thinking, you know, if, if you roll up to the park by mistake and you need to just turn around and go back out, I mean, that's so much easier too. Also, you know, um, this park is constantly changing. Crater Rim Drive has been rebuilt and relocated numerous times over the last few decades. We had the big earthquake in 87 that part of the road, again, fell into the crater. So right now in its current configuration, when you enter the park, it's really hard to decide, well, where do you want to go? If you turn left, that will take you to the best eruption viewing at the moment. But the eruption conditions change all the time. And with a roundabout with, you know, clearer directions on where to go, how to get there and avoid some of that congestion, I think it would be a, it's a really good solution. One of the most important parts of the proposed plan is the relocation of the USGS facility within the park. The agency monitors the volcanic activity within the Kilauea caldera and the Puna district. The data it collects is critical to keeping everyone informed and safe. I talked to Kenneth Hahn, the USGS scientist in charge, 
to get a better understanding of how his work will be impacted. Can you elaborate a little bit on why it is being relocated? Unfortunately, during the 2018 eruption, the earthquakes up at the summit area of the volcano destroyed the kind of the main structure of our old volcano observatory building, the Reggie Yokomura building. And so that is not a repairable situation. And we've also found out by experience now that that was not probably the best location to have a building. So we are going to relocate within the park. And so we need to build a new building, which will be part of an overall reorganization of HVO and our other USGS unit up in the park, which is Pierce, the Pacific Island Ecosystem Research Center. So for the first time, we'll be united together in a single building, and we'll have actually two facilities, a field station to base most of our field work up within the national park, and then a research center down in Hilo. Are there already plans in place for what the new facility will look like? Will you have more room to be able to store more equipment or do more of your work? So what we're looking at now is making a forward operations base that will have some offices, some labs to work on equipment, mainly for deployment of equipment and monitoring functions. So it'll be kind of the active field science front for the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. And then, you know, research, slower research with heavier instruments and things like that will be down in Hilo. And that will be where the bulk of our storage is as well. One of the things they're allowing us to keep on Uikahuna Bluff is an antenna mast. And that mast is the place where it collects data from all around the caldera and up off Mauna Loa and a variety of field sites all radio their data back to that location. And it's also a place that we have cameras for monitoring the activity both at the summit of Kilauea and also looking across at Mauna Loa. So this won't have any impact really on our ability to monitor eruptions. And in some ways, it will increase our ability because we can build out this new building with more state-of-the-art computer interfaces and equipment than we had in the old building. As with any proposed plan for construction, it will take some time before visitors will be able to benefit. Here's Farrah Kane again with insight on how long it will take to complete the project and what will happen to Uekahuna Bluff, the site where the Jagger Museum and the USGS facility will be moving away from. So if this goes forward, our proposed action, groundbreaking could commence and it could be well underway within one to four years. How long before we can say, yes, it will be complete? That's, that's really hard to say at this point. But I wanted to mention that even though the park and USGS, we were considering, you know, demolishing the Jagra Museum in that area at Uekuhuna, Uekuhuna will remain open. Uekuhuna is probably one of the most sacred sites because it is the highest point on Kilauea. It is, you know, looking overlooking the home of, of Pele Honuamea and all of Kalua Pele. So that area, it, it's open now and it would remain open. There would just be no buildings in the area and we would replant in native plant species and make the landscape just a lot more how it used to be. And so to me, that is particularly exciting to have this cultural landscape return to its original intent. That might be the best part about it. Yeah. Right on. Thanks okay. so much, Jessica. All right. Aloha, Russell. 
That was Jessica Hurricane with the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park and Kenneth Hahn with the USGS Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. The public is invited to provide input on the proposed disaster recovery project during two virtual meetings this Thursday, February 24th. We'll have links with more information on the converse- conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Bug. It's a little bug causing big problems for ranchers on the Big Island. It stands to impact our food security as pasture lands become unusable, threatening the cattle industry. We talked to Carolyn Aviloa, a state rangeland management specialist, and Nicole Galassi of the Cattlemen's Council about the spittlebug. Aviloa starts us off. So the two-line spittlebug is a, a little insect. It's about the size of your pinky fingernail. It is a classified as a frog hopper. It's just a little flying, hopping bug. It first discovered in Hawaii in 2016 in the Kona area, where it was doing a lot of damage to pasture. Since then, a lot of work has been put into trying to understand the extent of the damage, um, how it's been spreading, what the biology of this bug is in Hawaii, and how it's impacting our pastures and how we might try to deal with it and manage it. In 2016, a rancher brought it in for identification and had reported that significant pasture areas were dying. And as we found is that this this little bug, where it started out on approximately a 2,000-acre area in that first year, it was confirmed across 2,016 acres of pasture. Over the subsequent years, it's spread by about 30,000 acres a year. Up until now, our our, our surveys last year revealed it's now impacting about 178,000 acres in West Hawaii. What the two-line spittlebug does is it's named a spittlebug because in its immature state, it forms a spittle mass that most people think of when they think of a spittlebug. Um, what, what might be a little bit different about this spittlebug is the spittle mass is not up high on the plant. It's generally down near the soil level. And so that spittle mass is protecting the immature spittlebug or nymph And as it grows up, it grows and it changes form and it develops into a black little bug with two orange lines that run across its wings. And that's the adult stage. So the the immature nymphs feed on grass plants primarily and so do the adults. Um, It's the adult feeding behavior that tends to be most damaging to grass. The adults are sucking juices out of the grasses and as they're doing that, they're also injecting amylase into the grass. What is amylase? amylase? is just a compound in the bug saliva. I believe it functions to help break down some of the structural carbohydrates in the grass so that it's more able to feed on, on more of it. What that amylase does in the grass, though, is it, it interferes with photosynthesis, and um, it, uh, it effectively starts to kill the grass because the, grass, the grass's photosynthetic ability um, is reduced, and so it starts to starve. And so what we see occurring is we just start to see grasses that start to turn brown and die. It looks like somebody sprayed it with herbicide. Nicole, why don't you jump in here? So you represent the cattle industry. I mean, what were the farmers thinking when they first saw this? The cattlemen were the first ones to see this on their lands and um, in their pastures. 
that's because they're there every day on the ground and monitoring these things. Um, to be honest, a lot of them, once they found out what the two-line spittle bug was, um, at first they weren't sure how bad of an impact it was going to have. Um, once they started working with the researchers, they started observing it more on the ground, they really realized that this is going to be one of the biggest detrimental impacts to the cattle industry that we will be seeing in our lifetime. So it really is, uh, it's a pest that we want to stay ahead of because we just don't want it to spread to any other ranches because the ranchers that have the two-line spittlebug, they are there working on making sure they have enough forage for their cattle. Um, they're spending lots of money out of pocket trying to reseed those pastures to make sure that there's no bare soil. They're combating the weeds that come up once the bare soil allows for those weeds. It's a tough battle, and the ranchers are at the forefront of this. But one of the messages we're trying to get out there is that it's not just a rancher problem. Yes, it is going to affect their herds and their economics, but that also means that it's going to affect the amount of local food that they can produce. And it also means that they're trying to keep the spread from going further beyond their ranches to things like other landscapes, to forests, to people's backyards. It really exacerbates that drought. Um, and Carolyn, do you want to say something? Um, I was just going to say that within the first year, um, by the end of the first year that the spittlebug gets on a place, that we've seen pastures lose nearly 100% of their forage capability. The plant community transforms from what was productive, nutritious, grass and, and, and clover pasture to a forest of weeds. Uh, just It gets overwhelmed very quickly with weeds that cattle cannot eat and live on, and it changes that landscape, and that's where the problem starts. So the rancher loses his productive capability. We've estimated it to be valued at around $133 an acre, and then he's got the added cost to try to recover that land and make it productive again, which can range, you know, all over. But our, our preliminary estimates are at about $500 per acre, and it's going to take up to 10 years to try to re restore that land. What's our defense? How do we eradicate this thing? Well, I don't really, I don't know that eradication is possible. This little bug is on almost 200,000 acres, and to be able to try to wipe it all out, there's just, it's just not logically, it's just not really possible. Um, what we're trying to do is come alongside and understand the way that the damage unfolds and figure out how can we come alongside ranchers and help them to get move that ecological response, move that, that landscape change in a, in a direction that is not as damaging with weeds and trying to see how do we get instead some grasses that are resistant to the two-line spittlebug established so that we can maintain the functional integrity of these agricultural lands. So there's no pesticide. There's no pesticide to be able to use to beat them back. You can't treat well, the grasses. Not really. It's it's so cost prohibitive on such a large acreage that's very difficult to access that it's not really a feasible alternative. Is there a natural pest for the spittlebug to keep it in check? No. There's been a lot of research put into looking into biocontrols and. No effective biocontrols have been identified yet. And this is beyond Hawaii. South America has got huge problems with spittlebugs. They've also looked into biocontrols, and um, it's not really been the silver bullet that everyone hopes it could be. But looking for resistant grasses is where 
South America has really put a lot of their research as well, and we, we're, we're gleaning from and learning from as much as they've learned and trying to see which of their solutions might have applicability here. The challenge is our landscapes are a little bit different, and reestablishing forages on the types of landscapes that are impacted right now in Kona, for example, are, are a little challenging. The landscape's very young, the, shallow, the soils are very shallow, and getting other grasses to grow there is difficult. But just about all the ranches that have been impacted have been attempting on a small scale to try to figure out how to overcome this. And we have several field plantings that we have been putting in with ranchers in order to try to evaluate different technologies, different planting methods, and the different species. The planting, those trials, uh, the ranchers are working with NRCS, and that's a really big help to get that cost share and funding. But it is expensive. And like I said, a lot of them are um, paying for this out of pocket. And so we're, we're really thankful for the legislature. Um, in 2021, a law passed into action, um, Act 137, and that is giving a little bit of money to help these ranchers in their mitigation practices. And actually, there's a bill coming up um, in the legislature in the Ag Committee, HB 1714. And that's, again, Representative Hashem introducing a bill to make sure we get some funding appropriated to the Department of Agriculture so that they can help the ranchers in addressing this issue with reseeding uh, with the right types of seed and then also making sure that we can continue the research to monitor the spread of this two-line spittle bug and make sure it doesn't spread further. Are there federal funds that uh, the, the ranchers can access? So right now there are not, but that is something we're working on with our D.C. delegates. They are aware of this problem. They realize that is something that is going to have a negative impact on our food production, on our cattle industry, which is important to our agriculture industry in Hawaii. There are some appropriations that we're looking at in the federal legislation, but that kind of takes a little bit of time. So there's things in concert happening, both looking for federal funding, looking at the state funding, and actually the state funding um, did come from the American Rescue Plan. Um, So I guess that did come from the federal down to the state. But we're also looking at other means of funding as well, whether that's other grants, um, um, philanthropists who are interested. Um, The Hawaii Cattlemen's Council put together a group of stakeholders, which does include NRCS, Uh, Big Island Invasive Species Committee, Hawaii Department of Ag, as well as ranchers who are affected and ranchers who are not yet affected by two-length spittlebug. And we've come together to make sure that we can um, find that funding, um, get some of this outreach out there. One of our outcomes was a website, which Carolyn had a big part in putting together. It's www.tlsbhawaii.com. And on that website, we have a couple of informational videos. Um, And the the reason behind that is because, once again, we want to make sure that the public understands the the impacts of the two-line spittlebug, not just on ranchers, but the extent it could have affecting them in their personal lives. Yeah. So, Carolyn, can you talk about, you know, the other things that the spittle bug is getting into? I mean, is this going to be a problem for um, uh, just in general? You know, because I, I know the Big Island has sure. had some issues with the with wildfires, um, you mm-hmm. know, and erosion. So so how does that all figure in with the spittle bug? Yeah, that's a great question. So the spittle bug, 
when it gets in a landscape, it starts to kill the grass. The biggest problem that we have is that we lose cover. Um, the, the integrity of that grass plant community is entirely compromised. We get, um, in some cases, we'll get some bare soil, which can lead to soil erosion and sedimentation and water quality issues. And then uh, with higher, we get a major um, onslaught of, of invas- other invasive species, other invasive weeds, really ugly things like blackberry come in and create these gigantic thorny brambles that just leave the landscape so inhospitable. Wildlife won't go in there anymore. People surely won't go in there anymore. It's useless now to livestock. And so it's it's creating this huge problem for, for agriculture, but it's also hindering recreational land use on, you know, out there on the landscape. Hunters, hikers, people that just enjoy the aesthetic value of that landscape is all being transformed. Even in the forest where there's grass understory in the forest, the grasses are being killed and these weeds are coming in there, and it's just completely changing. We've got partners in, um, you know, in our in forest restoration types of organizations, and they're really struggling because Kikuyu is a is a is a little bit of a nemesis. Kikuyu grass is a, one of the main grasses that are impacted. It's one of the primary forage species for the cattle industry, and it's also um, it's also a naturalized species. It's been here about 100 years. Anyway, it's in the forest, and in Projects where they're trying to restore native native um, plant communities. The folks that I've talked to, they 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 know kikuyu grass. It's a familiar enemy. It's a familiar uh, foe, to, so to speak. And they know how to um, manage it. They know how to suppress it, and they know how they have strategies already in place to reforest. They're seeing these other invasive species move into the forested areas, and and it's creating a major challenge for them too, because where once the landscape was actually not that difficult to access and the, the, to control the kikuyu grass, it took just you know, a tiny bit of uh, herbicide perhaps and creating a dead spot so they could plant a native tree in. Now they have to deal with, again, these brambles of thorny weeds oftentimes or these brushier species that are much more difficult to get into and much more difficult to control. So it's, it's impacting everybody. It's impacting the landscape industry, I'm sure. Um, I don't have as much interaction with them, but this, this bug impacts turf as well as uh, any really any kind of grass. That was Carolyn Aviloa and Nicole Galassi talking about the spittlebug, an invasive species that is attacking ranch land on the Big Island. Bills to help combat the spittlebug uh, are advancing at the legislature in both the Senate and the House. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the exhibit Treasures of Devotion, Human Connection in Secular and Sacred Art, featuring works from the museum's permanent collection, honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Paul Levy, author of Watiko. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about healing the mind virus that plagues our world. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. 
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options, scheidler.hawaii.edu. The time clock is ticking for the Early Learning Center at the Honolulu Civic Center. A long-planned construction project to fix the aging parking structure is prompting the move at Siegel Schools. HPR's Casey Harlow joins us to talk about it. Good morning. Morning, yes. They knew about the repairs that needed to happen at the parking lot, the municipal parking lot underneath the school since 2009. And there have been resolutions addressing you know, the repairs that needed to be done kind of formed a partnership between the city and Siegel Schools. Just to note that, you know, the city has, owns the preschool there. It's just that Siegel Schools is contracted to operate it. And so back in 2013, they knew that there needed to be critical repairs. There was a leaking roof in the parking lot. And so they tried to mitigate a full-blown repair by having a partnership with Siegel Schools so that they recognized that there wasn't an interruption in service, and so they had an MOU saying that Siegel Schools would have to uh, make certain moves as far as a consultant going in there and figuring out um, what needed to be repaired, and there would be a constant relationship or communication between the city council and the city and Siegel Schools. However, uh, their contract, their lease, uh, was kept getting extended, and uh, up until now, uh, where earlier this month the city notified Siegel Schools that uh, their lease would not be renewed and they're going ahead with uh, major repairs to the parking lot underneath. So there's a sense of urgency. It's like for 10 years uh, they didn't see uh, a big, big push to to find another location, and all of a sudden now they've got six months left. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, uh, having a preschool, relocating a preschool in six months' time is a uh, a pretty tall task, and especially, and it's putting parents uh, in a very stressful position. And school administrators definitely know that this is uh, an uncomfortable situation for parents, and understand that. Uh, right now, they're trying to find locations uh, near downtown or in the Kakaako area to kind of maintain that uh, nice location that they have, where it was on the corner of Baratania and Alapai streets, uh, but. Having some place nearby where uh, uh, families who work in downtown could easily drop off their kids and can pick them up and then go home. or And, um, yeah, this puts them in a very uh, awkward position and a stressful position because parents don't know there's no solidified plans to reopen at a new location just yet. So parents have to figure out a plan to that. And there's already a edu- early education shortage here in state and even in urban Honolulu. And to kind of give you a sense of like how great the need is and that shortage, here's Megan uh, McCorson. She's the CEO of Siegel Schools. And she kind of explains like wait lists uh, because there are wait lists for pre-K programs. I mean, it's over 200 seats and spaces and you're not going to find that anywhere else in, in that area or even within a reasonable distance. And it serves, you know, from 18 months 
up. And so just also serving, you know, like the younger kids, that's really difficult to find. Anything kind of like two and under is really hard to find in the state, but especially in that area. Actually, that was Kathleen Allgaier. She's the director of early learning at the nonprofit Hawaii Children's Action Network, telling kind of the impact of how big this school is in urban Honolulu and, you know, how difficult it is to even absorb or even place over 200 children into a program at this point. But here's Megan McCorston, who uh, will explain the waitlist issue. A lot of new parents know this very well, but they know to get on a wait list for any preschool here, you know, as soon as they're pregnant, because they know that general waiting times on wait lists for any school, including Siegel schools, is usually one to two years. And many times it's really disheartening. Many times we just don't have the space for them and they they outgrow the wait list and and never get a space at one of our schools. And so I did speak with a parent uh, who has a child there. Uh, He has an older an older child who's four years old and a younger one that he's trying to get into the school. And so uh, this is Ryan Okuno uh, trying to explain, you know, the concerns and uh, the stress that he has um, for just in general uh, that keeps him up at night now knowing that there's the school is going to be closing at its current location. Can my parents continue to watch my younger one? Can we find another preschool that has an open spot? Just this week, we've already gone to two campus tours. So, I mean, that means taking time off of work. We're trying to find a way if we can make the budget for those schools, which are A, more expensive, and B, now we got to look at, do we need to find a second car so that we can split up in the morning and drop our kids off in different places? Where are we going to park that car during the, you know, when we're not using it? You know, how are we going to be able to afford another insurance, another registration? Do we have to take out a loan? You know, can we find a reliable used car a second gas bill. What happens if something happens to my parents and they can't watch him before we can get him in, into a, into another preschool? You know, do I have to think about quitting my job again? You know, those are the things that keep me up thinking about it. So definitely puts uh, these parents into a very stressful situation. But uh, it's going to be very hard to find another affordable option uh, for a preschool because. Uh, Siegel, uh, the school actually uh, charges about $1,000 a month, which is by far one of the more affordable programs. Yeah, well, I guess they've got to hurry up and start looking because they don't have much time. Exactly. But uh, there's much more to the story, so stay tuned. All right. Well, thanks so much, Casey. Thanks. We've been talking with HBR's Casey Harlow. To read uh, more about this issue, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check explores why we don't use more prefab homes to help with our housing crisis. Editor Chad Blair joins us today to talk about it. You know, you look at the statistics nationally, Hawaii, how do we compare? Well, when it comes to home ownership, we have the fourth lowest rate, meaning it's pretty tough for a lot of us to own homes. Here in Hawaii, the only states that have it worse are California and New York. I think we'd agree that it's pretty expensive there, also the District of Columbia. So the story today from Lawrence Urea is on what's noted as structural insulated panels. Structural insulated panels. What are those? Those are plywood-like boards with condensed styrofoam in between them. And with this material, building prefabricated homes supposedly is a lot cheaper than going with 
existing companies. Lauren did interview uh, SIP Systems Hawaii, a company in Kaimaki, and they are busy trying to get into the market and say there are cheaper ways to build homes, therefore hopefully increasing more home ownership in the islands. Well, you know, my understanding is that part of the reason why we haven't done the prefab homes is kind of the pushback from the unions. In fact, Lauren Turi, our reporter, did talk with at least one union representative, uh, PRP, right, which represents mm-hmm. the carpenters. And they did say, look, this is going to depress worker hours. If it's going to be cheaper, you're going to increase out-migration. They pointed to how, look, it's a tough market as it is. Look at the inflation situation, the supply chains, in part because of COVID. Um, but if you counter that argument, the idea is, well, what if it took less time to build a home? Therefore, you can build more homes faster. We do have a deficit. We need a lot more affordable homes in the state to meet our growing demand. Yeah, I mean, uh, we are in a crisis, so why not try it? Right, and the dollar figures, I don't want to overwhelm people with the dollar figures, but um, this could cost anywhere between $295 to $785 per square feet. That's the estimate if you use this material. Uh, and if you could do that, a, a home that's about 1,800 square feet, a single-family home, cost about a million dollars. But it would be a lot different. It would be a lot more expensive to go to the traditional route. So that is one of the things to look at economically to see whether this is something that is really uh, worth saving our time and money to build more homes. And this company, this Kaimiki company, they've already started to put up these um, structures. Right. It's not too far from our offices here. We're in Kaimiki as well. Uh, On 10th Avenue, there is a facility going up. And the talk is that it would only take four days to get up those defabricated panels, the framing, if you will, of the home. That doesn't include, you know, the electrical and all the stuff that has to go inside, but that's pretty darn fast, four days. And and you can drive on 10th Avenue and and see it. And by the way, uh, cruise by civil beat and wave to us on Wi-Fi. <laughs> well, uh, I know we're probably going to have more conversations around this just because our housing need is so great. And we'll see see where this goes. We'll keep you posted. That's something that we focus a lot on at Civil Beat. As you know, how can we deal with the high cost of living here in the island? All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was editor Chad Blair sitting in for Lauren Teruya with today's Reality Check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance, committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org. Are you service minded? HPR is looking for a full time membership coordinator to give our station members and volunteers the care and support they deserve. If you love public radio and are ready to join our lively and highly interactive workplace, learn more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Applications due by February 25th.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. As we celebrate Chinese-American culture this Lunar New Year, we find out the story behind a plan to build arches to mark downtown Chinatown in the historic district and a new exhibit honoring 14 movers and shakers in the uh, Chinese community. We talked to Eddie Flores, who the community knows as president of L&L Hawaiian Barbecue, but he also wears another hat as head of the Better Chinatown Association. He explains how former Mayor Kirk Caldwell asked him to explore building a distinctive gateway to Chinatown. Well, the arch is really to showcase Chinatown and make it a landmark. Because if you go to San Francisco, San Francisco was actually one of the very first with the big arch. And every tourist will go there and take a picture. And I plan to do the same thing for Honolulu to help promote and, and to uh, improve Chinatown. Because the arch, once we build it at Kekaliki and King Street, that's the first one where the rail is supposed to have to stop there. And when all the tourists come in, you see the arch, that should be the landmark for Chinatown, in addition to Wolfhat uh, building. Right, so the gateway. Yeah, the gateway. When they get off the rail, if the rail is being built, they walk right through it into Chinatown. And I have seen the one, you know, in, in San Francisco, uh, I think in New York, you know, and, and yeah, you just want it to, uh, to set apart this kind of historic district. Yes. I have a designer. He's a volunteer. You know, I'm working on volunteer right now. We are not soliciting any money. We're working uh, on our own time. And the volunteer, his name is Andrew Tang. He has a tremendous knowledge in designing. In fact, our design is almost similar to the one in, in London, which is kind of like a little more funky, a little more modern, instead of the old traditional Chinatown arch. And so this is part of an effort to kind of raise people's awareness about this project. And you've got an exhibit kind of highlighting the contribution of Chinese Americans here in Hawaii. Yes, that's true, Catherine. You know, the Chinese community uh, has done a lot in Hawaii. You know, most people think that we are brought up with silver spoon, got money. But actually, the Chinese came over one of the first immigrants that came over to work as contract laborers in the 1800s. It's just like my great-grandfather came to Maui and worked in, in the farm. You know, so they worked very hard. There was a lot of discrimination, a lot of prejudice, but they overcame that and became very successful in the community. And uh, this is an opportunity for me and for the association to showcase some of them that the most people do not know because uh, these guys did a lot, you know, like Chen Ho, Hiram Fong, KJ Luke, you know, CQ, Yihap, you know, all these guys did a lot for the community and Chinatown. And so you are paying homage and highlighting their contributions and, and hard work here in our community. And this exhibit showcasing their efforts kicks off. We, we just want to showcase them. And we want the community to be proud of them, the Chinese and also the Hawaiian community. Because they've done so much. 
And the exhibit uh, is, is being sponsored by Central Pacific Bank Foundation. I really appreciate that because, uh, you know, they came out and say, look, we'll do it. It will run from Tuesday all the way till Saturday. So if you cannot make it out on, on the weekday, you can come on Saturday. And after that, we're going to move it over to American Savings Bank building, the downtown main office, on February 28th to 26th. So we're very excited because uh, this is one of the very first times that we honor Chinese accomplishment. And it's great because, you know, we're celebrating the Lunar New Year and lots of folks are, are down in the Chinatown area anyway. So it's a, a great opportunity to, uh, to learn more about this place. Yes, it is. And also, too, we, we wish people would come to uh, Chinatown and visit Chinatown. And I go there almost like two, three times a week. It is a great place to visit, to eat, despite of all the negative publicity, you know. But uh, we're trying to improve it. Uh, you see it. You know, I was brought up close to Chinatown when I first uh, came from uh, Hong Kong, you know, to Hawaii back in 1963. We, we live about three blocks away. And subsequently, we moved to Kukui Garden, which is just about a block away. So I spent a lot of time in Chinatown, believe me. Well, you know, and as you walk around today, some of our favorite, you know, haunts didn't make it through the pandemic. This has been a tough time. It is a tough time for everyone. But, you know, we're going to change it. So I would encourage people to go visit Chinatown, especially on Saturday and Sunday, if you want to go to the open market, hey, it's cheaper than you buy anywhere else in town. Um, believe me. And it's not all Chinese. you got Vietnamese, Chinese, uh, Filipino, all kind of people down there. And, you know, this administration is, you know, working to spruce up the area down there to make it more inviting and to listen to, to some of the uh, concerns that the business association, you know, has had about the, um, the conditions down there and what we can do to improve yes. it. Yes, we, we understand that, and uh, we will cooperate 100%. In fact, uh, on 26th of February, the Chinese Chamber is uh, having an initiative to uh, remove the graffitis and so on. And I recently uh, mentored a young young group from high school, and they have a great idea that, that we're going to work on. They were telling me that there are so many, you know, wooden, broken window, and they were covered up with uh, plywood, and they were going to have someone to paint it to make it more attractive, like uh, Kaka'ako. And I told them, yeah, that's a great idea. In fact, I will fund, I'll pay for it if they can get organized to do it. In fact, but the only condition I, I put down is that it must have a Chinese theme. Ah, there you go. You know, to make it more interesting because, uh, you know, why would they come to Chinatown? Got to be a Chinese theme. And, and when we talk about our young people, we do also have a special, I guess, a webinar that's happening in conjunction with this exhibit, right? I think it was the granddaughter of one of the folks that mm -hmm. are highlighted in this oh, exhibit. Oh, that's correct, yes. So she will be talking about it, about the great-grandfather. And I was surprised to find out that uh, her great-grandfather was so famous when, when he passed away. There were 500 cars possession, and the Paul Barrow was a senator, governor, mayor, and so on. Boy, that's more famous than me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but that's all part of the history of Chinatown and all to be celebrated, you know, during this time of the year. And as we raise awareness about the plans for uh, the arches for Chinatown. Yes, uh, that's what we're going to do. And in fact, uh, when I was working this project, I was thinking maybe, uh, you know, I should approach the city to uh, have a Chinatown 
a week or something like that, maybe the next couple of years. So let, let me try to work on it, you know, to invite people to come over, free walking tours, you know, discount. I don't know. Let me let me figure it out. <laughs> okay. Uh, All right. I'll, I'll work on it. I'm semi-retired. Like I said, my, my daughter's running the show. I only work half days. So, you know, I have time to fool around. That was Eddie Flores, head of the Better Chinatown Association, talking about a new exhibit honoring key Chinese Americans in Hawaii. The show is at the Central Pacific Bank building and opens today. In addition, there's a virtual talk story tomorrow, which features a granddaughter of CQ Yeehop, one of the 14 honorees in that exhibit. Kimberly Basford is a filmmaker who has two documentaries, one about her grandfather and one about the history of Chinatown. To find out more about the Arch Project, go to HonoluluChinatown.org. That winds up our show for today. Tomorrow, we learn more about dental sealants. Why aren't more families taking advantage of this treatment? You got some feedback? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.